it's not about being subordinate to someone, it's about being selfless to a mission. So when you and the company have the same mission, we want to dominate this market and be in this space, and then every decision you make, that you and the company make, aims toward that decision, phenomenal things can happen, but you have to be selfless. Welcome to Beyond High Street. My name is Jenny Derrick, and I'm the Dean of the Pharma School of Business here at Miami University. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by George Heath, who graduated with an MBA from Miami in 1990 in marketing more particularly. So welcome, George. Welcome to Beyond High Street. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thanks, Jenny. I'm excited to be here. So as our listeners know, we weave through a range of topics and get to know our, our, our guest. And we talk a little about you, your background, your your journey through the pharma school and beyond high street as well. So, you know, you've got a different background from many because I'm speaking to you about your relationship with us with respect to the MBA, not the under, your undergrad degree. But talk to us about your educational experience. I know you had a, a different start with your bachelor's degree and, and then you transitioned <laughs> to, to another university and different program. And then and so talk to us about those early choices and then also how how and when you found your way to do an MBA. Sure, I'd love to. Yeah, I, I definitely, it was a meandering path that got me through school. But um, I think first and foremost, I was a soccer player heading into college. And that's at least how I thought about it mentally, with also a desire to be an architect. Uh, and as you and I have talked about before, that was a funny thing because I had never met an architect. I had never been to an architect's studio, but I was a big fan of the Brady Bunch. And Mr. Brady was an architect, and that's what drove my choice for education down at Clemson University, where I, where I first started going to school and playing soccer. Didn't play much there, so I thought, you know, I think I'll go where I was more heavily recruited and transferred up to Bowling Green, um, where I also switched my major to graphic design. Um, but then I had an internship when I was at Bowling Green with uh, an ad agency, a small ad agency, and observing the dynamics in the office between the business side and the art side, I realized that an art degree alone probably wasn't going to be enough to secure my future. And I did not like the way that the business side sort of treated the art side. So I thought, you know, I've got to get credible. So I thought I'm going to get an MBA on top of this BFA. And the reason Miami was my choice was a couple of reasons. One, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, Miami was sort of the Harvard of Ohio schools. There were a lot of great schools in Ohio, but Miami was the one that was always sort of the aspirational school for many of us, um, certainly my friends. And uh, I think at that time, even it was sort of the, the public Ivy, um, this idea that it was you know, very much Ivy-like. Um, but the funny thing is I had never visited Despite being in Ohio my entire life, I'd never actually visited uh, Miami University. So um, I went on this little tour, the spring break of my last year of undergrad, and went around to all the schools that I was choosing between, which included, by the way, Michigan, Virginia, North Carolina, Miami, and Indiana. Now, for full disclosure, Jenny, I got rejected by Virginia, so that one didn't count. Um but when I stepped foot on the Miami campus, it was amazing. I was blown away. It was the, to me, it matched the vision of what a college should be visually. Um, it also felt very comfortable because I was near, near to Cleveland, near enough, especially compared to the other schools I was choosing between. I knew a few people there, or at least that had gone there. So it was not unfamiliar territory. 
it probably didn't hurt that I got a, a an assistantship, a graduate assistantship also, which I was not going to get at those other schools. So um, it just felt like home right away. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I ended up at Miami in a, in a very circuitous way. So for the benefit of our listeners, um, note that Mr. Brady was an influencer. I quite like that. <laughs> before we even knew, <laughs> before right. we even knew what the word influencer <laughs> meant, right. he was an influencer. <laughs> that's right. And I'm going back over your comment about soccer. So what position did you play in soccer? Well, for those who are listening, I'm six foot six. So mm. pretty much you got to be a goalkeeper. There's not many six foot six field players. So yeah, I was a goalkeeper. You're, you're a goalie. And, and um, did you think you were going to go professional at that stage? We all do, don't we? We, You know, seven, (laughs) I started college at 17. So um, at 17, I definitely thought I was going to go pro, figured I would play in Europe, you know, be a star. And then I was the fourth string goalkeeper at Clemson University, which was sort of a rude awakening, but I wasn't Mm -hmm. ready to give up yet. Um, And, and, you know, Clemson was number one in the country at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was in above my head. I just didn't know it. I was so naive at that and, age. And if you still follow soccer, who's your favorite team right now? Who do you follow? You know, I'm a big fan of Man City. I'm a big fan <laughs> of the British and teams. If my son ever listens to this podcast, this is the, this is his favorite team. <laughs> this is the team that we would wake up early for in the weekend mornings to watch the European League and so forth and, and watch. Yeah, I love I love Pep. He's a fantastic mm, coach. Yeah. Um, love his innovation. So mm. yeah, I, I'm definitely a Man City guy. And that's very good. And just also for the benefit of our listeners, when you reeled off, off the schools that you looked at, they're all schools that we consider peer schools with respect to our, our gift agreement with the farmer family. So you were making good comparisons there, George. I'd like to give you an A plus for, for that. And I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So, so for the benefit of our listeners, and I should know the answer to this question, but I do not. So now we teach MBA down at Voice of America, but talk to me about where you were taught the MBA, where you had classes and, and that. It was right there. So it used to be the, the school had an MBA program. It was right in Laws Hall. So it was before the farmer school. So it was Laws Hall, but actually a funny story. So my assistantship was with Dean Robeson, one of the, great deans um the assistantship was basically to assist him in any way a lot of it was working with some of the professors on various things some of it was working with the office staff but there was one project he called me in on and he knew of my art background and he asked me to do a rendering of laws hall with a new edition which was actually a rooftop edition basically it was like a giant enclosed glass library to be it was a really cool thing because even at that time, we had pretty much outgrown Laws Hall. Um, and so I don't think we ever would have imagined the farmer school as we envision it today, which is just a spectacular building. Um, but yeah, it was in Laws Hall. All of our courses were there. Um, the other amazing thing that drew me into Miami and that I definitely took advantage of, and I encourage everybody who hasn't already done it, although most people associated with Miami have done it because it's, it's such an important thing, is study abroad. So my... First year, uh, at the end of my first year, I got to study in Italy for the summer. And then my second year, I studied in London with a side trip to uh, Moscow and Leningrad, which I guess now is um, St. Petersburg. Um, So uh, really remarkable experiences for me. And uh, another, another reason I chose Miami is just the it was sort of like it's not even like study abroad is an option it's just considered automatic like where it's not if are you going to study abroad Mm -hmm. so where are you going to study abroad 
And I love that we still have this as a hallmark of our program. I was grateful I got to Luxembourg a few weeks ago for our 55th anniversary, which I've just done what I shouldn't do, put a timestamp on the podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, I'm, I'm smiling when you talked about the previous dean wanting a rendering for Laws Hall. So again, for the listeners, do not panic. But I have been known to say that we should pop the front of the farmer school building <laughs> and, and redesign the front of it and then put the columns back. So, so I might call you up, George. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. Renderings for me. That's right. So talk to me about your career journey. So your first job out of uh, MBA, if I'm not mistaken, was in sales and marketing uh, at Thermovation. But talk to us about the journey that you went through that led you to Sherwin-Williams. And of course, we'll talk about what you've done since that too. Yeah, so coming out of school, again, because of my relationship with Dean Robeson, um, I had an opportunity at Procter & Gamble. Um, but my father had started this little engineering company back when I was still young. I think he started when I was around 10 years old and still had it and basically called me up when I was trying to decide what I should do if I should take the Procter & Gamble thing. And he said, you know, I would love if you came to work for me for two years. Um, so Thermovation Engineering was his company and he was pretty persuasive combined with the fact that I owed them so much because they, they'd they done so much for me. So, and, and the agreement was I would do two years with my dad, help him build the commercial side of his business because he was a brilliant engineer, um, but never really had any knowledge or expertise in, on the commercial side, sales and marketing. And so um, I kind of said, okay, dad, I'll give you two years and then I'm going to go to Procter Gamble or somewhere else and, he said, deal. Um, so uh, we uh, took off um, together and worked on this project. I have to be honest, Jenny, for two years, I was not a great employee. Um, I was okay. Um, but, uh, and we did some great things. We had started to build some things that I think were going to be helpful. We grew the business a little bit. But then a friend of my dad's asked me to run a congressional campaign, a primary. And I did that for, I think it was six, I don't know if it was six weeks or eight weeks, but it was 24 seven. I mean, if I got sleep at night during that time, it was, a, it was a shock because uh, it was just 24 seven doing everything I could to get this guy elected. And we lost, we lost by less than a hundred votes and uh, in a very close race. But my dad sat me down and basically said to me, you know, if um, you put in the same kind of effort into our business that you put into this campaign, you know, we could really change the world kind of thing. And he was right. And and this is another tip for students, young listeners. If there's one variable, one characteristic that I think separates good from great, it's selflessness versus selfishness. Those in hindsight, those first two years, every decision I was making regarding the business, I would funnel through my own personal decision-making process to see if it conflicted with you know, maybe the plans I had that weekend or what I was doing or what I was comfortable doing. And I was relatively selfish. I mean, I wouldn't say I was selfish, but I wasn't selfless for sure. Um, during that campaign, that was the first time I'd probably been totally selfless, where everything I did was with the mission of winning that election. And so I did come back to my father's company after that eight-week leave and worked the same way I worked on that campaign. And suddenly, the business took off. And when I joined my dad, it was a $300,000 business and we turned it into a $10 million dollar, dollar business. Um, we grew from, I was employee four to 50 employees and um, a lot of great things happened. Sadly, my dad got sick, terminally ill toward the end of this 10 year run we were on. 
and basically looked at me and my brother and said, we either one of you like to run this. And my brother was off being a fireman. And I knew as much as I loved this company that my passions were going to take me elsewhere. And I, if I made the call to run that company, it would be forever. Um, and I wasn't really to make that commitment. So I uh, sold the company um, while my dad was sick. I kind of went through a process at the same time, then jumped to a company in Boston, a tech startup that was venture funded. And I got my what I would call my second MBA because it was a two-year, 24-7 insane experience with this startup, basically living bi-coastally. I was half the time in Boston, half the time in Silicon Valley, um, and it was crazy. And then um, got recruited to go to a company called PPG in Pittsburgh, um, which was closer to my old world because um, the engineering company my dad had built was um, industrial engineering, building industrial ovens that were used to do things like cure coatings and polymers. And PPG was in the coatings business. That's what they wanted me for. But they wanted someone who was a more innovative and creative than their typical type of marketer. So I joined PPG in Pittsburgh. Um, and then within a couple of years, got recruited by Sherwin-Williams, which was a, a return to Cleveland for me. So at the time when I jumped from PPG to Sherwin, I didn't know if it was going to be a great decision because they were both very good companies. PPG in the space that I was in was way ahead of Sherwin-Williams. But Sherwin had a great reputation and it was a Cleveland company and it was full circle. And, you know, by this time, I've got two kids now that um, came along that route and uh, getting them back to Cleveland and closer to family was was beneficial. So I took the job there. and It ended up being a fantastic decision and a fantastic experience. Um, and so, you know, started off as a VP of marketing quickly within a year became president of that division. And then within a couple of years after that was named group president for three of our divisions and basically a $3 billion business with about 7,000 employees. So I went from graphic design major to, uh, president of what would be a fortune 500 company over 20 years, pretty me pretty, another, another meandering type route to that ultimate job. What I find really interesting and what, what you're saying too is this full circle that you came, perhaps, when you look at Sherwin Williams and the industry it's in and you started in architecture and you've got a love for design. I mean, it's it's great how everything just came together, I think, too. Yeah, definitely. I, I My dad was the one who helped coalesce some of that. I When he tried to recruit me and wasn't succeeding at first to come to his company, he said, you know, you'll be able to use your creativity here. And I'm like, dad, it's an industrial engineering company. How am I going to use my creativity? But what I learned was from him and then actually independently got validated by an industrial shrink. That's a funny story. I'll tell you, but um, yeah, I was able to utilize my creativity. So even though it wasn't graphic create creativity, it was just the way that I, my thought process worked made me very creative in how we, sought and served customers with my dad's company, which was really core to what helped us grow so much. We did a bunch of unique things. But yeah, I had some validation when I was being recruited by PPG. Another company was recruiting me out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And they, when we got to a point in the process, said, hey, um, before we hire anyone at this level, I think it was a VP job there too, they said, um, you've got to go see this shrink in um, Atlanta, Georgia an industrial psychologist and you know my growing up with my father who was a west point guy and you know a, a suck it up kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps guy going to therapy was not the kind of thing we prioritized so the idea of going to a shrink and spending a whole day was 
sort of not in line with what we typically would think of doing. But I have to say, I was really impressed. They did a whole bunch of tests and then a whole bunch of interviews. And in short, they said, if you don't take the job or if you do take the job, you'll be able to talk to the psychologist after the fact. And he can tell you a little bit about what he learned. So I ended up turning the job down, but called him up anyway and said, so what'd you learn about me? And he, it was very insightful. But one thing he said was that kind of validated what my dad said, but came independently. So I finally believed it was, you know, in all their testing interviewing, there had been people who were more analytically sharp than I was, but not a lot of them. And there had been a lot of people, um, there had been several people who were um, more creative than me on the testing and the test uh, and the interviews, but not a lot of them. But he said he'd never seen someone who had the combination of the two at the level that I had. And that ended up being kind of what made me unique in my career was the ability to combine creativity with analytics and do so in a way that had some, you know, leadership skill to go with it. And um, I think that served me well. I love, and I'm so pleased you you referenced that too, because so often you see people who are highly creative, but not always good at follow through and implementation, or highly creative and not providing a lot of fact-based evidence to support their point of view. But to your point, having everything in a package, and that is truly remarkable and and, and good for our listeners to hear. So yeah. moving on, then, then you did leave Sherwin-Williams after quite a long run, I think over a decade, now you're doing something quite different. So why don't you share with the audience what you're up to now, George? <laughs> sure. And actually, I, again, I go back to uh, Dean Robeson. When I was in grad school, um, and I had wonderful professors, but probably one of the most fulfilling experiences was my capstone management class taught by Dean Robeson himself. Uh, Dean Robeson himself. He got the CEO of Procter Gamble, John Smale, to come to class about once a month and spend a couple hours talking to us. And he would always come in. Dean Robeson would prepare him with what we were talking about in class. John Smale would start talking for a couple seconds and then immediately go off on a tangent with whatever the issue was at Procter and Gamble he was dealing with at the time. And uh, I was captivated because while I had great teachers, most of it was academic and theoretical. This was the real deal. And I was just just captivated by everything he said. And just it was it was mesmerizing. So I may have put a little note in the back of my head that said, if I actually accomplish something, uh, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go back and find a way to, you know, do the same thing that John Smale did um, for others. And so that has informed a lot of the things I've done, including coaching when I got out of grad school. Um, teaching that I do now. So yeah, at, 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 uh, after 10 years at Sherwin-Williams, I told them 10 seemed like a good even number. Um, there were some other things I wanted to accomplish. I was enabled by the fact we had done so well during that 10 years that um, financially I could step aside and choose what I want to do. So people will say, oh, you retired. And I always say, I have a hard time with the word retired because retired sounds like you stopped doing anything. Basically, retirement for me is it gave me FU status, right? I can choose to do whatever I want to do and not worry what anyone else says. If I don't enjoy it, I stop doing it. If I love it, I just keep doing it. So um, I had this weird opportunity where my younger son was in middle school at a great school here in Cleveland called University School. He came home and said, Dad, they're looking for volunteers who know something about business. I think you know something about business. Because um, my boys always thought all I did was sell paint. Because uh, that's all I wanted to tell them. It was too complicated to tell them anything else. Plus, I wanted to keep them humble. So I said, yeah, I sell paint for Sherwin-Williams. So um, 
my son asked me if I would help. I helped. Uh, the person who ran the program said, hey, could you come, you know, guest lecture to my class a couple of times? And then a few months later, it was like, hey, you want to teach one of my two classes? And then it was like, hey, you want to take over my classes? And so that's what happened. And so here I am eight years later. I'm still a teacher at U.S. part time. I go in. I'm like a mercenary. I teach two to three classes each day and get back out and love it because I'm able to. The class is called microeconomics, but it's really entrepreneurship and business. And I'm able to impart all these stories and help these boys develop business ideas. It, it's a blast. It's a blast. That's no, great. It's so good that you're doing that and giving back in that way too. I love it. So coming back to college, I'll take you back to that next. Um, and I'm curious, you know, you've talked a lot about Dean and, and, and his impact on you, but who else really made an impact on you with respect to the professors who taught you? Who do you remember? Well, Dr. Douglas was another one. Um, I don't think he's with us any longer either. He was someone who had an impact. Uh, Dr. Rosenthal, is Dr. Rosenthal still there? Retired, but Eddie uh, Rosenthal is my marketing communications director. So. Is that right? That's yeah, funny. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Rosenthal was funny because, you know, and I think most of us students felt this way. He was fantastic and a pain in the ass at the same time. Uh, we all sort of loved and hated him in equal parts, but uh, he was tremendous. He was tremendous. And I think he knew the role he played and was playing that role intentionally. But he definitely was someone who impacted me. And then later on, Dean Jenkins was a fantastic influence on me and such a great dean. When I think about Dean Robeson, Dean Jenkins, and you, I just think about some of the great deans we've had, been lucky to have. So, um, yeah, definitely those are big influences. And outside that, I mean, my dad was a massive influence. And being able to work with him for 10 years, you know, I didn't know he was going to become terminally ill um, to be able to spend 10 years. And we were in a business that was very regional. We were spending a lot of time driving from Cleveland to Detroit, Indianapolis, Chicago, Columbus, Toledo. Um, we spent a lot of car time, a lot of windshield time together. And when he passed, knowing I had all that time with him, that if I had gone to Parkland Gamble or taken a job in Chicago, it would have been a phone call once a week for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was hugely influential. And that was, so my dad's probably one of my, also my biggest influences. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a gift. It really is a gift that you had that time. Really a gift. Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about the uh, John Smale course that you, you loved. What, on the flip side, what was your least favorite course that you had to take? Um, let's see. Operations. Uh, that's never been my strength. I went back to Penn State with a few of my staff and I became president and acknowledged to our CEO, one of the great CEOs of all time, Chris Connor from uh, Sherwin-Williams. Um, uh, I acknowledged I didn't feel strongest in manufacturing and supply chain. And so they were kind enough to send me and my team, my manufacturing guy and my finance guy to Penn State for a week to kind of brush up on that stuff which i thought was really really valuable. how did it feel going back to do it again how did that feel it was better the second time around <laughs> uh i did not have the greatest professor the first time around but i won't mm. uh first time around i won't mention any names but um yeah definitely the second time around was was much more helpful and there's another tip one of the things that uh one of the, the hardest moments for me in my career was when I got promoted to president, I mean, my entire career, I'd come up through commercial sales and marketing, sales and marketing, and not to sound arrogant, but I was always one of the smarter people, you know what I mean? Not, not that I was necessarily the smartest person in the room, but I kind of knew my stuff um, as I moved up. And I thank Miami for a lot of that because that's where I got most of that marketing knowledge. 
Um, so I'm as I'm, as I'm moving up, I'm always, you know, at the top of my game. When I became president, I suddenly became great. I'm still great in marketing, but I was the dumbest guy in the room when it came to all the other functions. So I've got a finance guy reporting to me who's way smarter than me in finance. I got a manufacturing guy way smarter than me in manufacturing. Same thing in HR, R&D, sales. These people are way more knowledgeable than I am. So, you know, suddenly I had to kind of bump up my game. I had to really try to get more knowledgeable in those areas so that at least I could challenge the people who were working for me. The good news is I had a fantastic team of people always. So um, I didn't have to challenge them that much. They were challenging themselves, but that was tough. That was tough. When you go from knowing more than anybody else in your vocation to not knowing nearly as much as they do and they're reporting to you, that was hard. So before, I, I've got a few more questions about Oxford, but I want to just stay with this topic for a minute. So is part of the series we like to give advice to our students but you've just raised a really important point that we end up working and having people report to us from functional areas that aren't necessarily our strengths so what advice would you give to some of the students as they're thinking about how to or even early career folk as they think about how to navigate what you've just said well one thing understand that when you finish school your education didn't end it's just beginning. Um, and you're going to learn an awful lot more whether you like it or not. Uh, be proactive. Even going back to my university, if, if I'm honest with you, Jenny, if I could do it over again, the thing I would do differently is I would focus more on learning than grades. Um, and that's not to say we should ignore grades. And if you do it right, by learning, you get good grades. But I was more worried about making sure I did what was necessary to get a grade rather than learn everything I could. If I could do it again, I'd focus on learning. Even if maybe I got, instead of a, a minus, I got a B plus or a B, I'd rather have learned more. I look back and I didn't maximize or optimize my education because I was so focused on just doing what I needed to get a grade than learning. But you kind of learn that lesson when you get out in the real world and you have to learn because there is no grade anymore. The grade is whether you get promoted or fired, and for that, you've got to keep learning or you're going to suddenly be behind. And, and you know, if there are students listening, I think one of the things we all feel as, as educators is that there's even more emphasis on grades now. And many of us don't like that. You know, we feel that there's too much emphasis, to your point, there's too much stress associated with it, getting a certain GPA. And, there is. And, and I'm sure we could probably have a very long conversation about that because it, it's, yeah, it's, it's something we're very mindful of. Well, you know, I gave advice to my son that you may not, may not want me to share with your listeners, but with my older son who followed a track similar to mine in the sense that he went to, uh, and I hate to admit this, but he went to the Kelly School in Indiana. Um, he, he wanted Big Ten sports, so um, that was his, part of his decision-making criteria. But I said, listen, I said, I appreciate you trying to get great grades, but here's what I want you to do. Get a 3.5. Don't get a 4.0. And then focus on maximizing the experience. Mm. Joining clubs, getting involved in projects, learning as much as you possibly can, um, even if it costs you a grade here and there, mm. you know, do that. Rather than try to get the perfect 4.0, put all that pressure on yourself, focus on the grade and the system rather than learning and enjoying, mm. that's going to be a problem. So um, I don't know if most parents want me to say, hey, aim for a 3.5, but the point is, is when you get out, as long as you have a good grade point, you're going to have a good career. I mean, no one ever asked me a grade point after my first job, exactly. not a single human being. Mm. That being said, that first grade point is going to determine maybe whether you end up with that top job you want or the second job or third job. But even that in the long term isn't going to affect you 
um, that much. And, uh, you know, you get that foot in the door and then from there, it's up to you. No one asks you a great point. The school becomes a little less critical. Um, you just got to prove it. And that's one of the things I love about Miami students is when I was at sure when we hired as many Miami students as we could get and high integrity, hardworking, um, give them a project. They're going to bring it back to you with results that you didn't even anticipate you could do yourself. Um, that's what's going to make you succeed or fail more so than what grade point you have. And I love that just to wrap this one up too, I think one of the things we know, we don't have data to prove it. It's hard to find the data that I'm around the topic I'm about to share. But to your point, we know that farmer school and Miami graduates often outperform graduates from other universities. And I think that's really important to your point. Getting that first job is important. We understand that. But the trajectory, the impact you make both as a leader of business and the impact on society writ large, Miami graduates out, outgun most other competitors. And I'll tell you, Jenny, so my son is at EY in Chicago, killing it. Um, he says he's surrounded with Northwestern, Notre Dame, Indiana, and Miami grads. And he goes, the Miami kids overperform. They're you know, you expect Northwestern kids to be sharp. You expect, you know, Miami kids outperform all of them and make it an outsized impression on him and the people around him. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. And, and we know that our graduates do really well at EY, too. There was a data point we heard that we have more partners at EY than from any other school. And so yeah, it's, it's a good fit. So coming back to Oxford just for a couple of minutes, um, you know, when you, what are your memories of Oxford? Like I, I, what, what's behind my question is that you didn't come here as an undergrad, so you had a different lived experience here than many of our listeners. But having said that, what was your favorite building uptown and where did you like to go to eat? And do you go back to the old haunts that you liked? I'm just curious to know. Yeah, I got lucky. to. I fell in with several um, friends who... Um, some in the MBA program, some outside the MBA program, but we all, I think, coalesced around a love of sports. That was the first thing. Um, and then a few of them was a love of music. So you and I have talked music a few times. You may not know this, but there was a station, a a, a world-known, world-renowned station called 97X based in Oxford, Ohio. Back in the 80s when I was going to school, um, alternative music, New Wave was hugely popular. And there were only a handful of stations around the country that played it. One of them was K-Rock in LA. There was a station out of Long Island that was big. Um, there was, a, funny enough, a little station in Windsor, Ontario that blasted into Detroit. But 97X, coming out of Little Oxford, Ohio, was one of those stations. And I mean, every second of the day that station was on and friends and myself would bond over the music on that station. Um, that was that was huge. And then heading into downtown, um, there were several places, um, some of which I don't remember the names of. Um, but you know, we were we were the guys that I hung out with were sort of extended undergrads, I yeah. should say. You know what I mean? Yeah. There were grad students who were like hardcore grad students. We had a guy down the hall who spent like two years studying the 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 characteristics of nickel. Like that was his that was his thing. We were sort of like grown up undergrads who were studying business but having a good time too. Mm -hmm. So um we were uptown probably more than we should, but sports and music were things we really bonded well, over. Let, 97 let's, let's segue to music, George. So so we did have a great conversation about music. And when I hopped on this call, you told me about a concert that's coming up 
and Huntington Beach, which must be like your most favorite thing that you're looking forward to because all of your bands are going to be there. So tell the audience about this concert called Darker Waves and, and what the lineup is and, and yeah. where yeah, go. <laughs> when it comes when it comes to music, Jenny, I'm a nerd um and, and an admitted one. Um part of my life has always been music not i wish i had the ability to make it but i don't so instead i just listen to it and go to it and uh develop the love early on for concerts and now part of what i wanted to do when i retired was to um, bounce around and go see concerts wherever they may be so every year i'm in london i'm in la i'm in chicago i'm in new york and this one coming up is particularly big because all of the bands that I used to love, New Order, Tears for Fears, OMD, Human League, Devo, uh, the list goes on, are all playing at one venue on the same day, uh, Saturday the 18th, and uh, um, can't wait, can't wait. And and we were just comparing notes. For those who know Huntington Beach, it's actually on the beach or on probably in the parking lot, but they're building a stage and seating right down on the beach there at Huntington. It sounds fabulous, absolutely fabulous. Yeah. It so is, I know we're coming is. out time and you have given some advice, but what what's your final piece of advice that you want to give our listeners? I think it really comes down to those things, a couple of things I've already mentioned, which is that focus on learning, not so much grades. Uh, selflessness to me is hugely key. That's really when, when you discover that ability. And by the way, selflessness is not becoming subordinate to someone. Someone will say, oh, by being selfless, can't you be taken advantage of? It's not about being subordinate to someone. It's about being selfless to a mission. So when you and the company have the same mission, we want to dominate this market and be in this space. And then every decision you make that you and the company make aims toward that decision. Phenomenal things can happen, but you have to be selfless. If anyone is selfish during that process, one, it's obvious to the team. Um, no matter how clever you are, it's usually pretty evident in your actions. Um, but number two, you're just not going to be as successful if you're selfish. So I think selflessness, selflessness is huge. And Focus on being a leader. And I think Miami does a great job of this. So we talk about Miami students being so hardworking, having such great values coming from the Midwest, including high integrity. But the other thing is they're just natural leaders. I think part of that comes from teamwork. Maybe some of it comes from just the Greek community and how many leadership opportunities are provided by those clubs and organizations. But, you know, there's, there's always a shortage of leadership and whatever, even if no one is reporting to you, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be a leader. Um, informally, you need to lead people. Later in your career, as you move up and people report to you, formally, you need to be a leader. Um, and I also think selflessness is core to great leadership. So um, I would say those are the things to focus on. And and the definition of leadership I've always leaned into is just about how you influence others. You know, how, how do you yeah. show up, how you influence? This has been a fabulous interview. I knew it would be. I know when we sat down and had dinner in Cleveland, I was so looking forward to the podcast. But thank you, George, for your gift of time to allow us to record this podcast. One defining characteristic of the farm school business is just how engaged our alumni are and how willing they are to continue to find ways to support the school. It's students, our faculty, our staff and other alumni. So thank you, George, with all sincerity and go well as you continue in your journey beyond High Street. I appreciate that, Jenny. Thank you. It's been great.